In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. It is the night of his betrayal in the garden. It is the night that Jesus and his disciples are gathered, not only for Passover, but for one final sermon. And it is just a small part of this sermon that we heard moments ago. These words of Jesus are part of his response to Philip, his disciple. Lord, show us the Father, Philip had said, and it will be enough. The first part of Jesus' answer can be summarized in this. Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. If someone were to ask you, who is God, how would you respond? Perhaps you would say that God is all-knowing or all-powerful, that he's the creator of the world. All of that's true, of course, but you could just as easily believe that without being a Christian. Who is God? How would you describe him? The most biblical answer is also the most profound answer. Jesus. Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. Jesus is who God is. In fact, to contemplate God apart from Jesus is to no longer have God at all. God can only be known through Jesus. Or as John puts it in chapter 1, verse 18 of his gospel, no one has ever seen God. The only begotten God, the one being in the bosom of the Father, he has exegesato, he has exegeted him. He has made him known. Or as Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And therefore, to think on the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus is to think on the words and works of God. To love the words and the works of Jesus is to love Jesus, and to love Jesus is to love God. That's precisely why Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The first thing we want to realize is that Jesus isn't playing a game of theological gotcha. He isn't saying, if you loved me, you would keep my commandments, and since obviously you don't keep them all perfectly, then despite what you feel and want to be true, you must not really love me after all. You've probably heard of Catholic guilt. Well, that's the kind of reading that comes from Lutheran guilt. As if Jesus were saying, you got me flowers? Well, if you loved me, you would have gotten me my favorite kind. As if there is no more to Jesus' teachings than A, you're a poor, miserable sinner, and B, he forgives you. And since he isn't forgiving you here, then guess what this is about? No, there's far more to our Lord's words than this kind of caricature. When he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, it's not so different from what he later says to Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. When Peter answers and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus doesn't jump on his case and say, not nearly enough, obviously, since you denied me three times. No, Jesus accepts Peter's love, imperfect as it may be, and he gives it form. If you love me, tend my sheep. 
The same is true back in the upper room, as Jesus sits surrounded by disciples who will desert him that very same night. He accepts their love as it is and gives it form. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's possible, too, that something has gotten lost here in translation. The word for keep is the word tereo, a word that also means treasure, guard, observe. The word for commandments is the word entolos, a word that also means teachings or instruction. If you love me, you will tereo my entolos. You will treasure, guard, and observe my teachings and instruction. It's also, it's almost axiomatic. For example, if you love classic cars, maybe you have a classic car, your love is going to manifest itself in your time spent, in your attention, in your tinkering, in your learning and building and endless conversation about said cars. You treasure, you guard, you observe and keep whatever it is that you love. If you love me, Jesus says, you will treasure and guard my word. Love always expresses itself in a form. Love for your spouse has its own unique form. Love for your children has a different form. Love for your neighbor or coworker has a different form still. Love for your Lord also has a form. And it is precisely that you will love his Antolos, his precepts and teaching, treasuring them and guarding them, and yes, conforming yourself to them. Consider some of the scriptures we sang in the intro. It. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Love for Jesus certainly means love for your Bible. But of course, in your Bible, you'll also find that Jesus has instituted and given many treasures of profound importance, including things like preaching and baptism and his supper. These too are given for us to receive, to observe, to treasure, and to guard. Now, listen to what Jesus says next and see how he connects the treasuring of his teaching with the giving of the Holy Spirit. If you love me, he says, you will tereo my entolas, you will treasure my teachings, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's no surprising, then, that in his teaching, Jesus instructs us to be baptized, that through this new birth of water and the Spirit, we would receive the Holy Spirit. And through his word, read and preached, his Spirit is poured out on us all the more. My words are spirit and life, he says. And at his table, partaking of his flesh and blood, becoming one body and one temple with him, we become, even now, the eternal dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And it is this point that connects us to one of the major themes of Jesus' entire sermon. 
not just the answer he gives to Philip's request, but the whole of his sermon that stretches from John chapter 13 to John chapter 18. Not only does Jesus show us who true God is, he also shows us who true man is. Only in Jesus do we learn who God is, and only in Jesus do we learn what it means to be fully human. And for John, there is no greater climax, no greater coming together of these aspects than in the cross of Jesus. In the cross, both God and man are glorified. In the cross, we see the heart of the true God towards sinners as he lays down his own life for us. And in the perfect obedience, the perfect faithfulness, the sinless submission of Jesus, we see the heart of the true man toward God. In Jesus, these two are one. We see God's perfect love for man, but we also see man's perfect love for God. And at the climax and tell us of the cross, John says that Jesus handed over the Spirit. That doesn't mean that he gave up the ghost or kicked the bucket. What John is saying is much more specific. He handed over the Spirit. It's no surprise then that when Jesus is risen from the dead and when he returns to this very same upper room, he breathes on his disciples and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a scene straight out of Genesis where it says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. When Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to us, he is breathing into us the spirit of life. And he is making us into new and everlasting human beings, into what God has always intended us to be. So by receiving the Holy Spirit, we are conceived, as it were. And in this life, we grow as if in a womb and slowly become as Jesus is. And as Jesus is first born from the dead, so he has transformed death into birth. As we just sang, Jesus lives, and now is death, but the gate of life immortal. This shall calm my trembling breath when I pass its gloomy portal. Jesus has transformed death into birth, that in dying we shall be born and become fully human for the first time, fully human as our Lord Jesus himself is. And in our resurrection, baptism will finally have reached its telos. We will rise as true man, true human beings, sons of the Father, sons of glory, as Paul calls it. And as Irenaeus puts it, the glory of God. Back then to the upper room, 
and back then to Philip's request to see the Father. To have and see Jesus as he is is to have and see the Father as he is. But Jesus is going to the cross. So will the disciples then lose access to the Father and so become orphans? And we might ask this same question too after Jesus' ascension. Will we lose access to the Father and so become orphans? Jesus' answer suffices for both questions. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my entolas, my teachings, my commandments, and tereos them, guards them and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself, show myself to him. In what way, then, will Jesus show himself to us and not to the world? That's the very question that one of Jesus' disciples asks next. And it leads to the next part of Jesus' sermon. In the name